Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I am Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today is James Millward, Professor of Intersocietal History at the Walsh School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University, where he teaches Chinese, Central Asian, and world history. He also teaches at the University of Grenada in Spain. Our subject today is what is happening in Xinjiang. Jim, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a bit of history, given that you're an historian. Could you provide some context for recent developments in Xinjiang? Yeah, that's a dangerous question to ask a historian because the context could go back a long way or a short way. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll pick a medium, a medium point to start with. Um, I think one way for you know, listeners of this and, and watchers of this to, to think about it, we're all you know, aware of the, the Qing Empire. Uh, I believe that preceded the PR, you know, the Republic of China and the PRC. Um, so in, in the early 20th century, a bunch of these early modern empires fell apart, right? The uh, Habsburg Empire in Europe, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Qing Empire. And in each case, that collapse was followed by a lot of ethno-national uh, turmoil, right? And struggles for control over territory and so on. And that was the same case in, in what's now in what's now Xinjiang. Uh, and in the course of, of that time, you know, the Guomindang Nationalist Government of China was trying to make claims on the region, but didn't have really much power on the ground or influence on the ground until the 1940s. The Soviet Union was in there with influence. There were various warlords. There were uh, Hui Muslim groups and Uyghur groups and so on. Uh, and this is when those two uh, attempts to create uh, Eastern Turkestan Republic uh, happened, one in the 1930s, one in the 1940s. Uh, and in the 1940s, the state in northern Xinjiang, the Eastern Turkestan Republic, um, was really pretty viable, um, but it had lots of Soviet support, right? So it was propped up by the Soviets and it had military support from the Soviet Union as well. Um, but in uh, 1945, it had been fighting against uh, Guomindang and other forces in the south of Xinjiang. And it was pretty much at the gates of Urumqi. And then in the course in the negotiations leading up to the end of World War II, uh, the US influenced the Guomindang uh, and the Soviet Union influenced the Eastern Turkestan Republic and they made a deal. And the deal was pretty much to split rule over what is now Xinjiang and a condominium uh, was, was put into place. It was called Xinjiang. Um, there were representatives of uh, Uyghur interests in the uh, nationalist uh, um, Cong um, parliament, um, and but there were there were party and, and Uyghur uh, uh, elements and and influences all around the Xinjiang region, and that continued right up to 1949, when of course the nationalists you know, lost the civil war against the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and there was a changeover, uh, and at that point the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, seems to have made a deal with, with Mao 
Um, it's not exactly clear what happened, but the, the Guomindang handed over control of Southern Xinjiang to the uh, PRC, to the CCP army coming in. Uh, and they really just sort of handed over the keys. It was a peaceful turnover. Uh, and 80,000 Guomindang troops that were stuck uh, there in the region uh, uh, surrendered uh, and they were settled there in Xinjiang. And that's the core of what we now know as the Xinjiang Production Construction Corps or the Bingtuan. And then as for Northern Xinjiang, there was a lot of discussion about you know, what would happen, what would be the Uyghur representation. Uh, and the Turkic leadership of what had been the Eastern Turkestan Republic uh, got on a plane in Almaty uh, to fly to the People's Consultative Congress in, uh, in Beijing, and that plane went down. And so the indigenous leadership of what had been the Eastern Turkestan Republic all disappeared, and the Chinese Communist Party appointed new people into those positions. So those are the circumstances whereby what had been a nationalist and Eastern Turkestan Republic kind of jointly run region uh, came under the control of the PRC. Now, what happened then, of course, is that the, the PRC, like the Soviet Union, had a problem in that it was now ruling over a former empire, but didn't want to look like a colonialist. Right? And of course, the whole point of socialism is, or one of the main points of the socialist movement was anti-imperialist. So how do you do that, right? given the vast diversity of um, what the People's Republic had become, you know, pretty much on the territory of the former Qing Empire? Uh, and so they adopted a system somewhat like that of the Soviet Union. Um, it had its own particular Chinese characteristics, but what I call a centralized pluralism, or a kind of top-down um, diversity regime. And that's, of course, the famous Minzu system, the recognition of 55 uh, so-called minority Minzu plus the Han. Uh, and there's a lot, and, and again, people seeing this will know quite a bit about that. You can't have avoided being exposed to that if you've been going to China and dealing with China, looking at the currency, looking at stamps. Um, it, in, in retrospect, if we look back, it's really interesting how uh, how strong an imprint that Minzu system has on the PRC and, and on its public face, right? It's, it's, it's integrated into government systems. Uh, and it's also has been very much part of how China presents itself to the world. The 2008 Olympics are a good example of that. Um, and of course, I think a lot of Westerners may make fun of the, the kitschier aspects of the sort of celebrating of minority uh, people's culture, you know, the, the dances and the songs, and, you know, there is a valid critique that uh, this system tends to treat minorities as, as singers and dancers only, uh, right, and all of that. Um, but compared, for example, to, you know, Jim Crow in the 1950s in the U.S., um, that kind of top-down recognition of ethnic difference and support for it support for languages, support for education in Uyghur and Tibetan, uh, and, and, and official celebration of diversity as opposed to ignoring or playing it down or allowing for outright discrimination and oppression, which is really what's happening in the US in the 50s until the civil rights movement at least. Uh, you know, not so bad, right? So in the 1950s and the 1980s, that was really the golden age for how this uh, PRC system of uh, diversity management or, or multiculturalism worked. 
uh, and it worked fairly, fairly well. Uh, and is even, you know, is recognized as having worked by minority activists or by, by you know, non-Han ethnic activists inside and outside China today. So what we're seeing much more recently though, is rather than seeing it as, as, as a culmination of things going on for a long time or as a reaction to current events or terrorism or something like this, I think it's really a, a stark reversal on 60 years of PRC policy and of, of PRC approach to diversity. Uh, and that's why we're seeing such horrific things happening. And really, I think that's why we're seeing the global reaction to it. So it seems, thank you, that's a great review and overview. Um, if we look back over the past 20 years, it seems that there was a fairly sharp turn in Chinese government policy towards Uyghurs after the September 11th, 2001 attacks in the United States and President Bush's quote unquote war on terror, which played out in China in very specific ways. And then jumping a little further forward, there was violence in Xinjiang in July 2009 and a series of attacks in 2013 and 14 in Beijing, Kunming, and Urumqi. How does all of this fit together and bring us to the current policies? Mm -hmm. So I think to understand all of that, it's it's important to, to rectify the names, right? As, as Confucius would tell us. Um, in the era, the, the, there was indeed a change in rhetoric, a change in messaging about, about Xinjiang after 9-11. Um, I see that less so a change in policy, um, although it, it, it corresponded with crackdowns that had begun actually uh, in the 90s and, and more concern about, about Islam as a possible source of trouble then. But after 9-11 and the, the US rollout of global war and terror, really as a rubric of US foreign policy, um, that provided a great opportunity to the CCP leadership, you know, as it did to, to authoritarian governments and other governments elsewhere, to cast uh, separatism, to cast any dissent or differences from central government policy in Xinjiang as, as terrorist. Uh, and so that, I, I think, as, again, as it happened in many places, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that, or a cycle of repression, uh, response, and, and, and more re repression to that, or, or repression, resistance, repression, I think it's called. Um, and so, um, for example, there was uh, cracking down on expressions of Islam uh, and fasting at Ramadan, women veiling uh, beards on men, um, even before the recent actual illegalization of those of those behaviors, they were being discouraged by the state uh, earlier on, and then any reaction to that then is seen as religiously inspired resistance or potentially terrorist. Um, so, so 9/11 was was a turning point there. But I think the, the real big watershed, as you said, um, was the uh, Arunchi riots of 2009. And and one thing that's really important to do when we talk about that. Um, I, in fact, don't use the, the word 7-5 incident because that's too narrow a framing time-wise. 
we're talking about a series of events that actually began at the end of June and then a reaction to them in early July in Xinjiang. And at the end of June in Guangdong, there was a, uh, a, a brawl in a toy factory where Uyghur guest workers had been sent and a, a Han worker who had been fired uh, uh, made an accusation that, that Uyghur workers had molested a Han woman. Uh, it was untrue and he later admitted it was untrue. But uh, in, the, in the panic and the uproar that ensued after that, uh, a bunch of Han workers went into the Uyghur dorm and the fight broke out and at least two Uyghur men were beaten to death. Um, and it was very, it was very prominent um, and, and videoed and the videos circulated widely. So the protest march in uh, early July in Urumqi was to protest uh, that event and to protest the public handling of it because the initial response by the party and by officials in Guangdong and the police was to cover it up. And there was a lot of belief that in fact, more people had died, um, no one had been arrested yet. Uh, and so um, one, one draws these parallels um, only very cautiously, but in many ways it was quite similar, I think, to the, uh, the George Floyd events followed by the Black Lives Matter protests in the sense that the protests were in response to a previous death of someone. In, in this case, not directly under the hands of authorities, but you know, in this factory brawl. Um, uh, when that protest was repressed in Urumqi, um, it, it turned violent. Uh, there was rioting and the, and the images that are still available and that were widely sent, uh, broadcast over Chinese media were mainly of Uyghurs attacking Han parts of town. But there were also attacks by, by police and the paramilitary police, uh, that is the armed, the armed police uh, on Uyghur areas. There was machine gun fire through the night as reported by foreign reporters and scholars who were there. And certainly many more killed than the official numbers indicate and many more Uyghurs killed. And it was followed by a crackdown in which many Uyghurs uh, were disappeared or arrested and some were, were executed as well. Uh, so that is a watershed definitely raising tensions, but it's not you know, talked about generally, uh, I think in an accurate way. Uh, what has not been, what was not really common um, not nearly as common as the general media narrative, and I don't just mean Chinese media, I mean global narrative, uh, would imply or, or would suggest is what we would recognize as terrorism. And by that I mean uh, attacks on random civilians, religiously motivated perhaps, or at least to make a, a political point, um, this, this kind of you know, random, random violence like this, as opposed to unrest, which sometimes becomes violent, uh, but against police or organs of the state or official uh, offices, that kind of thing. And both of those has been going on, but the, the terrorism, terrorism has been much less common. Um, now, obviously it gets a lot of attention and, right, and rightly so. Um, and you mentioned those uh, three or four events in 2013 through 14 uh, in Kunming, Beijing, and a couple in, in Arunchi. Um, and they are very, they are very horrific. Um, the problem is that the, the PRC calls any resistance, any dissent, any march, uh, and indeed any of the kinds of things which they would call a mass incident elsewhere in China, they call it terrorism in Xinjiang. And so to the extent that you know, the mass incident uh, is, a, is a escape valve or a pressure valve in society in Eastern China, and by this I mean 
for example, uh, the factory owner has been uh, stealing workers' pensions, or the local official has sold off common land to a developer, uh, or the local chemical factory is pouring chromium into the waters, which people need to irrigate their fields. Those kind of things happen very commonly uh, in, in Eastern China. Uh, and they're generally dealt with by the party sending officials from the center who come down and sort it out uh, and usually punish the miscreants. Uh, but the party is able to, to come out of this looking like it has solved the problem. It has dealt with the local, the local issues. Um, and that framing, that narrative does not exist in Xinjiang. Um, and so I would actually say that Xinjiang is actually much more stable in, in, in PRC or CCP terms, in terms of stuff not happening, um, and has been um, really through the last several decades, simply because um, there's no wiggle room whatsoever for people to, to act that way. Um, anyway, any of those sorts of things get called, called, called terrorism. And so I think you know, within China and within the party system, as they talk about it, and, and I do think there's a certain amount of people believing their own propaganda, uh, that Xinjiang seems to have been this you know, tremendously uh, uh, unstable, dangerous kind of, kind of, kind of place. Um, I think if you look at it somewhat more dispassionately, which is of course hard to do when you're talking about terrorism, but if you look at it that way, you see that the actual numbers of, of terrorist incidents are low. Um, the kind of incidents which might in fact happen anywhere in China are much more frequent. Um, but the, what, is, what the difference is the policies to deal with them and the way in which the state defines them. So that brings us to approximately 2017, when there seems to have been a pretty sharp change in approach to Uyghurs and other, in your writing, you call them indigenous people rather than ethnic groups in Xinjiang. What has happened and why? Yes, let me quickly on indigenous people. Um, you know, not everyone agrees with that, that, that term, including many Uyghurs. They don't like the term for various reasons. Um, some would even say they're natives of East Turkestan. They're not indigenous to any, any place else. The PRC denies that they have any indigenous people at all because they see indigenous people meaning uh, formerly colonized people, which is not literally what the word means. Um, uh, one can also say natives. I don't like to say, you know, Shaoshu Minzu, right? Uh, minority peoples. And I actually got a paper from a student the other day who called the Xiongnu fighting against the Han a Shaoshu Minzu, a, a minority people, um, you know, back in the, in the second century BC, right? It's a, it's a very pervasive way of thinking about it. Anyone who's not Han instantly becomes a minority. But to me, it just seems odd to say that Tibetans are a minority in Tibet. Um, even if they be, or Uyghurs are a minority in the Uyghur region, even if they are actually numerically so. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the people who do, you know, post-colonial studies and, and, and that kind of thing will, will point out that our whole notion of majority and, and minority really only comes from the nation state system when suddenly there is supposed to be one people who are supposed to be there and everyone else is not supposed to be there or something like that, right? Anyway, so that's why I, I use those terms. Other terms are, um, you know, if I get in trouble for that one, I just say autochthonous. And no one knows what that means, and so I don't get in trouble for that term. But um, anyway, so uh, I'm sorry, I now completely forgot what your question was after that. So policy changed in 2017. Uh, right. Why? Yeah. Um, 
So a series of things uh, happened from around 2015 on under Xi Jinping's um, regime. Um, she moved the, uh, Xi Jinping moved the Ethnic Affairs Commission from the government to the party. Uh, and he moved the Religious Affairs Commission from the government to the party. They're in the, I think, um, United Front now. So he was centralizing control over religion and over ethnicity. Um, and it's, it's interesting to speculate why he was paying so much attention to this issue of, of ethnicities. Um, you know, his father was, in fact, in the United Front and, and known for his work with Tibetan and, and other um, groups on this Minzu uh, portfolio. And so it's interesting that she decided that this was so important, but, but without getting into his psychology on that. Um, there, has all, there had also been really since the fall of the Soviet Union, but picking up in the 2010s, uh, discussion in, within the party, discussion in academe, discussion in think tanks about the so-called second generation uh, Minzu system or second generation ethnicity policies in China, the need for them. Uh, and this was, uh, had been an ongoing discussion simply because one interpretation of the fall of the Soviet Union was that it had fallen apart because it had supported nationalities and that was dangerous. And so rather, you know, we used to talk about, and, and they still do, this is still the slogan, you know, Minzu Tuanjie, the unity of the nationalities. Um, but new terms came into this discussion, um, mingling and fusion. Uh, and the uh, anthropologist Ma Rong began talking about a need for uh, following what he, called American style Minzu policy rather than that of the Soviet Union, and by which he meant the melting pot. Um, and so his, his notions of American, uh, of the melting pot, uh, I think were a bit outdated and certainly we don't talk about the melting pot anymore. We, we talk about salads rather than fondues today. But, um, but anyway, there, that shift had been percolating around and um, it, it was a remarkably open conversation really in 2000, 13, 2014 or so. Xi Jinping weighed in at a speech uh, and, um, and made a couple of points. Um, one of which with regard to Xinjiang, and this is at the first Xinjiang work forum. And, and one of those was to say in effect that uh, our economic approaches, material approaches to resolving the Xinjiang problem uh, had not completely worked uh, or had not worked. Um, and so the party needed to implement spiritual uh, solutions as well. And this is that, um, that pair of terms, the, you know, wuzhi and jingsheng, sheng, right? So, um, and, and has Marxist uh, overtones, right? So whether it's the fundament or the, or the superstructure he's talking about. Um, and so that was a rather vague, it seems sort of theoretical sort of comment at the time. Um, but what it presaged was this shift towards psychological and, and cultural and re-educational approaches to try and change people's thinking. Uh, and I think it really marked a shift to an assimilationist approach. Um, and so without undermining the structure and completely you know, pulling down all of the, the pilings that hold up this Minzu system, uh, the PRC started around 2015 or so uh, to uh, implement its policies with a very different spirit. One aiming not at celebrating 
the 56 official nationalities, like I was talking about before, but one that aimed at really uh, downplaying their differences and playing up this notion of a Zhonghua Minzu, this kind of pan-Chinese, right? Zhonghua may look a lot like Han, but it is meant to be something different from Han that incorporates all the other Minzu, the kind of super Minzu. And so that's been much more prominent in, in the rhetoric uh, and, and argued to be in, in, increasingly here and there, argued to actually precede all of the other Minzus and ethnic differentiation to be this kind of Ur Minzu. Um, and this is actually going back to early 20th century, almost racialist thinking from Chiang Kai-shek and others, uh, that there was this ancient Chinese race from which all of these different peoples have, have uh, ramified, but you know, for geographical or historical reasons. And they haven't gone full on to that kind of explanation, but you see more and more hints of that in the rhetoric and talking about you know, ancient unity and ancient associations of, for example, the, the, the ancient peoples of Xinjiang have always been associated with the Zhonghua Minzu um, this, in a recent in a recent speech. Now, what does that mean? What is this Zhonghua you know, Minzu in the first millennium BC, right? It, it was originally rolled out to be, it was understood to be the, the result of nationalistic or, or of nationalizing processes in modern times, culminating in the Zhonghua Minzu under the, uh, the glorious rule of the Chinese Communist Party. It was a it was a capstone, not a foundation. Now they're talking about a foundation. Anyway, so we're seeing a shifting to um, this homogenized idea, this idea that Chineseness should be something that is uniform and clearly recognizable by a set of characteristics that are constantly reiterated in, in state propaganda. Um, you know, you, you, follow the Communist Party, of course, you celebrate you know, Chinese New Year, of course, you hang a lot of red lanterns, et cetera, et cetera, um, as opposed to this, you know, the plurality of, of different means of expression, which used to be the, the uh, what was broadcast really by the PRC before. That all sounds not very savory, but it's not on the same scale as what we've seen over the last few years with the so-called re-education camps and many other policies leading to some outside of China to claim that the CCP and the Chinese authorities are committing crimes against humanity or genocide, both of which are extremely serious charges. In your view, is there sufficient credible evidence to support such charges? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I think, so what I just said is, I was trying to explain the underpinnings and the thinking behind the mass internments, the mass re-education. Uh, and I think the idea really was, you know, to change people's, to, to re-engineer people's culture. Uh, and it was thought, A, that this would be a good thing to do, B, that this is a feasible thing to do. Um, and whether everyone believes that implementing these policies all up and down, I don't know. But I think that's really the explanation for, uh, and, you know, much more than counterterrorism, much more than vocational training, um, this idea of jiao yu zhuan hua, educational transformation, 
is really a kind of ethnicity transformation that they're achieving uh, or, or that they're trying to trying to achieve here. Um, so, and, and, and we see it obviously in, in, in the policies, you mentioned the internments, um, but it's also there in um, discouragement and actually illegalization of use of the Uyghur language uh, in schools, in public forums, in signage, uh, and indeed of you know, Arabic script anywhere, you know, halal on restaurants. Um, it's there in the uh, still under told story of massive destruction of physical cultural patrimony uh, in Xinjiang, of, of, of ancient mosques torn down, um, of, of cemeteries. This is particularly cool, of Uyghur cemeteries bulldozed uh, again and again and again. And these can be seen through satellite um, photography. Um, you know, the burning of books, I mean, all of that kind of thing, many, many examples of that. And so that's the sense in which it's, you know, it literally is an effort to eliminate this, um, this, this ethnicity root and branch um, that has, you know, come up to and sometimes gone over the edge of, you know, uh, of trying to achieve, you know, biological as opposed to psychological and cultural extinction. Um, and the reason I say up to the edge and sometimes over is because it's been accompanied by policies uh, incentivizing mixed marriage and beyond incentivizing, actually coercing marriage of Uyghur women to Han men, um, which we've seen. Um, the birth control policies of, that you know, are of course extended across the, the entire People's Republic of China, but they've been extremely zealously implemented, um, particularly in the last few years, um, as some studies have shown, um, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the actual birth rates because of those policies and also because simply the people who were incarcerated have gone way down. Um, and of course, when you put a million or more people in, uh, in, in prisons or prison camps, in, in those kinds of carceral situations under the control of guards, many of these guards, in fact, you know, undertrained recently hired. And it's a classic situation in which you get massive abuses. You get torture, um, you get rapes and sexual abuse. I mean, this will happen and has happened everywhere you have this kind of situation, right, of, of mass confinement. Um, and so those are the ways in which you've sort of gone over the edge uh, into, as I said, sort of physical genocide kind of territory. I'm not really that interested in arguing you know, so is it or is it genocide? I mean, there, the people have sort of different definitions. There is an official UN uh, definition with you know, several criteria, um, the bulk of which seem to me easily met by what's been going on. Um, but I think the question is, regard, you know, what are you going to do about what we know is going on? And are you gonna do something different if you call it genocide than if you don't call it genocide? And I'm not sure you know, anyone would because What's going on, regardless of what you call it, is is horrible and, and requires some kinds of some kinds of response uh, and certainly attention uh, to that. Crimes against humanity is a you know, different set of definitions, um, and they're very clearly being you know being met. Uh, and and again, there are ample reports, lots of evidence for all of this from multiple independent sources. Um, that have been looked at by different governments, but not just governmental sources, by independent scholars, by uh, you know, media organizations from all over the world have, have seen all of this, by testimony from 
Uyghurs and Kazakhs and Uzbeks, uh, others who've come out of there. Um, and their stories uh, you know, are become you know, a relatively small number of stories given how many people are involved, um, but they dovetail in interesting ways, but they're not absolutely the same either, right? So it's the kind of thing you'd expect from uh, similar policies implemented over the entire region um, by different local officials and so on. So anyway, the evidence for all of these things is very, very strong. And, and, and anyway, I won't, I won't talk about the uh, arguments. You know, there are certain groups, unfortunately, on I suppose we can call them the far left, I call them the faux left, um, that are trying to argue that this is all a great, uh, a, a great hoax perpetrated by the Trump administration. And I'm certainly no fan of the Trump administration, um, but they did not come up with this. Um, in fact, they tried to kind of play it down for a year, unfortunately, um, before finally deciding to, to begin to do something about it. We're running out of time, but I do want to ask you what you think we, and I'll define that in a moment, should be doing about it. And we includes the US government, like-minded governments, individuals. What do you think of a potential boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics? Um, other measures that might be taken to register dismay at least, horror, whatever term we should use at what's going on in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me start with the let me start with the U.S. Um, first of all, you know, there is a broader context to all of this, um, and it's um, you know, it, it's very hard given the level of atrocities that are going on in Xinjiang um, to compartmentalize that uh, at all, um, and it seems you know, very cold to do that. Um, and I don't think it should be backburnered or sidelined at all. Um, but one does need to, the US does need to continue to uh, do things and to interact with China one way or another, right? Um, and I think there are some of the policies of the Trump administration um, which should be uh, redressed. Uh, that is the US should, should back off from some of those policies without waiting for a tit for tat from China without using them as, as bargaining chips just because they're there on the table already. They shouldn't have been put on the table. One of those is, uh, is visas, student visas, uh, and the kinds of um, constraints on academic and cultural exchanges that have been put in place. There may have been a COVID reason to begin with, but you know, when China went down to you know, three cases a day compared to the US 300,000 a day, there really isn't a good reason to block Chinese student visas for that. Um, anyway, I, you know, the consulates need to open up and start processing student visas from Chinese from the, for the fall, not because we need to bring Chinese students here to, you know, to turn them into ambassadors of America, Americanness, right? That's not the reason, but we just need to be open to have these other kinds of conversations um, and, you know, and to, to take advantage of what is a U.S. comparative advantage in, in the education field. So I think that's very important. And then other things, you know, along those lines, um, I think would be helpful as well. And this is particularly important right now, given the rash of anti-AAPI, uh, anti-Asian American violence we're seeing in the US. Um, obviously, the Biden administration has 
has condemned that uh, very, very quickly and I think you know, very, uh, very directly and publicly. Um, but I know from you know, what's going on in the Chinese language, social media, uh, these things are too easily lumped, put together, right? So the Americans condemn China for, you know, for genocide uh, and a poor old woman is attacked on the street in New York, right? Those, those things are impossible to, for everyone to separate apart. And so uh, US policy needs to bear that broader context in mind and be separating um, them apart that way. Um, I think um, US should, and, and this is probably Congress, although perhaps the executive, uh, should do something for the uh, Uyghurs and, and some Kazakhs and others who are currently in the United States um, without a valid passport from the PRC and who, who cannot get that renewed without being brought back. Um, those who are seeking asylum or other kinds of protected status, we can do that very, very quickly. It's not very many people uh, and it should be done if only to put US money where its mouth is about these things. The sharper policies, particularly the, the targeted ones involving global Magnitsky, some of the entities list signaling, um, some of the sanctions on individual officials in Xinjiang. I think these have been very effective, not in directly causing economic pain, particularly, um, and not necessarily even in causing the same kind of political uh, uh, push that, that, that sanctioning Russian oligarchs does, um, because we're not sanctioning the, the oligarchs. But it has brought this issue to the attention of obviously authorities in Xinjiang, but also of companies, multinational companies, of large corporations in China. And what we're seeing with this kind of crazy tit for tat over, over cotton boycotts and so on is really the result of that. It's, 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 it's moved out, the, the import ban on Xinjiang cotton has forced the multinational fashion brands to, to take a stand. And yes, it's difficult for them uh, in some places. Um, but now we see actually an open airing in within the Chinese media sphere of this whole Xinjiang issue and Xinjiang cotton issue. And I know some people are saying, oh yes, we need to boycott H&M in order to support our Xinjiang cotton. But they may also be asking what's up with Xinjiang cotton? Why are we suddenly talking about this, right? So uh, I think these have been effective in, in the kind of tumultuous events the last couple of days we've seen, or a couple last week we've seen show that is the case. So. I think that's proper way forward. Um, let me talk a little bit about the Olympics more generally. Um, the, the problem with Olympic boycotts as a tool of policy is that it's one and done. In other words, once a leader of a country you know, declares that their national team will not go, uh, then it's all over except for the articles about the poor athletes. Right. Whom I do sympathize with. Um, now, I'm not saying the U.S. should not boycott uh, as a national policy, should not boycott the, the Beijing Winter Olympics. I, I think it may be inevitable, frankly. Um, but uh, this issue can be, uh, much more discussion needs to be had about it. Um, and it's not just up to the president of a country to, to make this decision. Uh, we should involve uh, more discussion of the corporations who sponsor the Olympics, right? You know, the, um, the, the International Olympic Commission has already said that, oh, Olympics aren't about politics, don't boycott, yada, yada. They're going to say that. 
Um, but the, the top sponsors of the Olympics are major multinational corporations, and they should have to take a stand on this one way or another. And so, so this conversation should be taken to them. And this is a role, not just for countries, but also for individuals by bringing that up. And the top sponsors, as they're called, of the Olympics, um, they're, you know, there's a website that lists them all, and you can, can, can go to those. So I think that's very important. Um, I think one thing that would be very interesting and actually probably more cruel to the athletes than simply canceling the Olympics, but would be a call for athletes to decide uh, on their own, based on their own conscience, what they wanted to do. Um, and I say that's very cruel because I would hate to be put in that sort of situation myself. But, um, you know, Nike did a very effective campaign on Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, I could see them doing a campaign along the lines of, you know, it takes a lot of courage to ski off a mountain at 100 miles an hour. And it takes a lot of courage not to, something like that, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, this way, people all around the world who are paying attention to the Olympics will have to pay attention to what's going on in Xinjiang as well. And I think that's the kind of approach that's more, that will be more effective at signaling and, and, and causing China reputational costs um, than simply leaving it up to you know, a presidential um, boycott like that. Um, and I think you know, for, for the media who will cover it one way or another, the broader context is that China has been kicking out foreign journalists uh, you know, at, a, at a very fast clip, the BBC just being you know, ex expelled essentially you know, in, the, in the last couple of days. Um, and so I think under these circumstances, what really cannot be done, should not be done, is the usual thing of using the Olympics as a opportunity to cover the country, right? To do the tour around, to let them grandstand, to let the PRC grandstand on this. Um, if they don't let you cover the politics, then don't cover the pandas either, right? Now, don't cover the opening ceremonies, don't cover the closing ceremonies, uh, cover the sport, not the country. I think that would be the kind of policy to go forward with that, you know, insofar as athletes want to participate and as countries are participating, it is only the Olympics that should be covered and not the broader, uh, you know, not the Chinese environment under, under that. Um, and then for just, you know, individuals in general, uh, right now is a very confusing time. You literally don't know what to wear, <laughs> right? Are your clothes from, you know, China makes something between 20 and sometimes 25% of the world's cotton in a given year. And around 80% of that comes from Xinjiang. Um, the issue is not only that that cotton is sometimes picked by, uh, by forced labor, including Uyghur forced labor. Um, it's that a lot of the cotton that's mechanically picked is picked by the Bingtuan, um, by this colonial, settler colonial organization that also runs the camps, right? Um, some of it is processed in factories by forced labor of Uyghurs. Other it is, is processed in factories that are um, built by local administrations that run a camp down the road. It's, it's a very complicated situation. So I, I'd say the most important thing for people to do is to signal their concern that they don't want to be wearing clothing or using electronics that are assembled or anything that associated with this gulag and its surrounding uh, penumbra of administrations and, uh, and companies. Um, and it's a tough call, but it needs to become, and the point of that is then this message as is already happening with cotton, 
um, you know, we get the companies themselves to be begrudging, that is multinational companies themselves to be begrudging ambassadors bringing this message to their Chinese partners, who in turn, in ways that I don't claim to completely understand, and it's not clear how, how much influence they have, but you know, that is getting through to the authorities, how difficult and untenable the situation is. So, so these are you know, ways of using what few levers we have to, to lever bigger levers, I guess, and, and hopefully to, to get the message across. But finally, uh, and this is, this is difficult too, and I'm not quite sure the way to do this, but those who have you know, track two, or I don't know all the what all the tracks are, 1.5 or whoever, you know, if there are ways to signal um, and, and bring messages to our, our colleagues and to diplomats and others in positions of influence in China, uh, uh, you know, there needs to be a way out. And the US needs to think about what we actually want, what are the action items to be done. Um, and of course, you know, just stop is essentially what we're asking, but that's difficult to do. So how can this be done? What is the exit strategy? Well, here I'm very influenced by Ming-Chin Pei, who wrote a, a really important uh, op-ed in Nikkei um, last year. Uh, and this gets back to the issue of what's going on, what's the problem? And Xi Jinping's argument way back in 2015 that it was spiritual rather than material. I think they've given up on development as a potential solution to what they see as the problem in Xinjiang. And Ming Pei also suggests, you know, real better practice or best practice development, as opposed to forced proletarianization through making all the farmers into factory workers. You know, that offers a kind of solution. Um, in other words, he, and he suggests uh, microloans, uh, allowing the poorer parts of Xinjiang access to the market the same way that rural that parts of eastern China, rural parts of eastern China, were given access to the market over the last several decades, you know, since 79. Um, that has not been done in Xinjiang. It's still been very, very closed commune style, uh, almost sharecropper-like farming where inputs are, are determined and the price of inputs is determined by the commune and the commune buys the crop at a fixed price as well. So opening up that to the market, allowing for local entrepreneurship and business again, letting people travel from their villages. They've been pushed back by the hukou system to local villages, um, those people who were the entrepreneurs selling kebabs, opening hair salon, you know, all that kind of small business has been shut down in the last few years. Um, and assisting the, the state, the Chinese state can assist that with, with microloans, trying to get uh, to approach poverty that way, rather than by forcing everyone to become factory laborers um, and thereby tainting supply chains that the rest of the world is connected to. And so, you know, to declare this kind of third stage of the Xinjiang project, uh, which is now going to use, you know, best practice development is a way to, and then of course, accompanied with allowing people to travel, allowing people contact with their friends, stopping to demonize religion and foreign travel and all of that, you know, unrolling it all is really the only way, the only way out. So that needs to be signaled. Uh, and if this is a way today that I can signal it, if anyone's watching who, who can do anything about this, um, give me a call or call Minxin Pei and we can explain in more detail. Great. 
Jim, we've gone quite a bit over time, so I will not ask you any more questions. If you have any remaining thoughts that you absolutely must convey to our listeners slash watchers, now's your chance. I think I've said, I've said more than enough, um, but thank you very much for having me today and allowing me to, to talk at such length. Well, thank you very much. And we'll be back to you for more, I'm sure. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.